The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. And by audible.com with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audible.com GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for March 4th, 2016, the Hate and Castrate edition. I'm David Plotz, Atlas Obscura, here in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio. With me is John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hello, Res- David. Resplendent and lavender. I like that shirt. I have a, like a slightly darker version of that shirt, but I think I want your version. And uh, joining us by the miracle of digital something or other is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hi, Emily. Hello. Where are you? You and... I'm in New Haven, the studio. Okay. On this week's GabFest, has Donald Trump locked up the nomination? Then we'll talk about how Hillary Clinton might campaign against him in the general election, and would she definitely win the general election? Then we will talk about the case before the Supreme Court, the Texas abortion case before the Supreme Court, an eight-justice court. Here's perhaps the biggest abortion case in 20 years. We'll have cocktail chatter, and in Slate Plus, Clarence Thomas breaks his silence. Why are people so obsessed with the fact that he spoke up in oral argument this week? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, get it by going to slate.com slash Plus. The anti-Trump forces are trying to coalesce. His domestic policies would lead to recession. His foreign policies would make America and the world less safe. He has neither the temperament nor the judgment to be president, and his personal qualities would mean that America would cease to be a shining city on a hill. Mitt Romney's forceful attack on Donald Trump. There are uh, super PACs coming out with advertising, attacking Trump University, Trump mortgage operation, attacking Trump's suits. There is a growing horror in the GOP establishment that Donald Trump is destined to be the nominee unless there is a kind of Rube Goldbergian chain of events to stop him. So, John, first of all, outline the Rube Goldbergian chain of events. Well, there there are many different kind of crazy scenarios. The most plausible, or as I like to think of it, is the shortest of the long shots is that in the next 12 days, the Republican, a whole group of different Republicans— Carpet bomb Trump with ads. Mitt Romney speaks. The foreign policy experts speak. Lawmakers say they'll never vote for him. And they build a critical mass to basically try to melt Trump and create the conditions so that somebody else can win in the winner-take-all contests of Florida and Ohio, and also in other contests, but those Florida and Ohio are the big ones, to basically deny Trump the 1,237 delegates that would be necessary for him to get the, to the, get the nomination. Then... 
they would take the messy band of candidates who had gotten some number of, of delegates. Trump would still probably be the le- leader, almost certainly be the leader. And they would head to Cleveland, and then they'd work it all out in Cleveland. Uh, this is not a pretty thing. It would be uh, really messy. There are reasons it's a long shot, but that's the most uh, plausible of the stop Trump uh, approaches. But there are a lot of challenges to it. And that theory does not involve this GOP establishment, which I, we should keep in mind, doesn't appear to actually exist. It right. appears, there's a, everyone keeps talking about the GOP establishment. There was some quote, I, I can't remember who it was. It was I think it was a Utah Mike, Mike Levitt, Levitt or something saying there's this fiction that there is some kind of coterie of people who can somehow create facts on the ground. There isn't. There's, a, there's just like people, yeah. but they don't have a power. So the question is right. So there, and there's nobody to convene it. And that was one of the, that's one of the hurdles. There's no leader. But in the age of flash mobs, perhaps there's like an establishment flash mob that that exists. And you see a little bit of it. You've got <laughs> Paul Singer running. Um, you know, you've got the money guys dropping a lot of money into organizations that are going to run ads. And there hasn't been a coordinated ad campaign against Trump of the kind he's about to face in Ohio and Florida. Expensive media markets, but that's OK. These guys are are wealthy. And, you know, you could have everybody kind of rushing to the sound of the guns at the same time. The problem or the challenge is all, a lot of Trump supporters would be re-energized by this idea that they want to, that they being the elites and the establishment and the protected, as Peggy Noonan calls them, are trying to take their candidate away from them. So this would be a great turnout mechanism for Trump supporters. And if I want to vote against Trump in Ohio and Florida, who do I vote for? Do I vote for Kasich? Do I vote for Cruz? Do I vote for Rubio? Um, and that's that's some of the problems here. And uh, by the way, are there enough of these people or are there more people who want to vote for Donald Trump? Emily, given that, as John says, even this this idea of stopping Trump from getting a majority and then beating him out at the convention is a long shot. So that the likelihood is that actually he has will have enough delegates to be the nominee. Isn't this a coordinated attack in which people are saying the most vitriolic and forceful and, and absolutist things about Trump and that he is unfit to serve as president. Could that be catastrophic for him in a general election campaign or no? We just he's outside the rules. Oh, I, it's a real gamble because if Republicans are making these arguments really forcefully and then he's supposed to be their guy, what does that do for the message to, you know, the some moderate independents they're going to have to win over if the um, establishment is reacting with this kind of horror? And it really opens up the way to a third-party candidate, I think. And right now, his candidacy is incredibly divisive. And Chris Christie has, of course, like become the mocked whipping boy of, I don't know, the whole country for having for standing with Trump. But if Trump really has enough votes, you're going to start to see much more of a shift. And and I think in some ways that would be even more divisive for the party because then you'll see more people of standing in the party moving over to Trump and then other people just like refusing to. And uh, that would be really fascinating. Yeah, the normal coming together that happens behind a nominee is not happening. <laughs> really? You think? Yeah, and, and there's a little <laughs> bit of it happening. Um, but the question is, what would a third party look like they'd have to find a candidate to run as the third party they'd have to get them on they'd the have ballot to get a party yeah they'd have, have to, to get a, attach themselves to something yeah and they need to do signatures right now yeah starting yeah uh, the they first. couldn't do that they couldn't well they i mean with enough money they could get on they but, could get but they'd on. have to start it now yeah yeah, yeah they would have to start today no I, this right. is the collective action problem this is the 
there's no leader to say, hey, guys, these dates are starting. Those who would like to stop Trump know that this problem exists. And But the problem is, if you've got your energies, how do you spend your energies? Spending the next 12 days trying to take him down in Ohio and Florida? Or do you spend them trying to get on the ballot? And that's there's nobody call a, to call a conference call and say, which way do we go? I, I mean, this this entire campaign has made a fool of all of all prophets and, and soothsayers. So Pundits everywhere. I, it's Including us, oh, yeah. surely. But I was already, oh, yeah. I was already oh, a fool. John doesn't make predictions, <laughs> so it's probably just you, Emily. <laughs> I'm sure that I've been wrong so many but times But I think before. there's... I, refu- I didn't want to talk about him last summer. I just felt like it was beneath us. Well, you know, it's not only that oh, this well. this um, campaign has made fools of people who make predictions. It's made a fool of analysis. I mean, I think you can, you can look back on... Um, you know, I mean, Logic think about it. Remember in 2014, I mean, it was two years ago, so uh, you should be allowed to be wrong in your ability to analyze something that's going to happen two years from now. But remember how strong we were talking about the Republican field being. And I was, I mean, it was true. It was the strongest Republican field in the history of Republican politics. Uh, but that was a time before we, it included Donald Trump. Do you have any idea, John, based on either 64 or on 1860, what <laughs> what does a divided Republican Party look like if it goes into a general with Donald Trump? I mean, well, does is, it does it remain a party? Does it does it split? It seems impossible yeah. to imagine that it's actually splits. In a oh, I don't know. I feel like it's going to I feel uh, unless if he continues, I feel like it's I feel like it splits. And but frankly, even if Donald Trump doesn't win, there will be a significant group of people who are most likely to be Republican voters who will think he was robbed of that crown by the quote unquote establishment, even though the establishment couldn't organize much. Uh, in 64, what happened was Nelson Rockefeller stood up at the convention, which you couldn't even imagine now, and gave a version of the speech. This is, you know, don't go down the path of craziness. Although in that same year, in October, Ronald Reagan gave his famous time for choosing speech in which he said, basically, we want to be a party of bold conservative principles. The difference here, though, is that uh, Donald Trump is not a conservative, either in past positions or really in temperament. So there's not an ideological, when Goldwater was running, there was an ideological William Rusher, William Buckley, Phyllis Shafley. There was a there was a movement behind you know that he was the spearhead of. He loses in '64, but the movement continues. Um, also, one other just amusing thing is that Goldwater didn't endorse Reagan in 1976. So what we're having now, going back to Chris Christie, is anybody who chooses a side is seen as craven and horrible and not in the best traditions of Republican politics. But if you think of Barry Goldwater, the grandfather of conservatism. Uh, supporting Ford, who would have been the equivalent in this battle of of supporting, I guess, Rubio. Anybody who is in the Trump camp who sees you supporting Rubio thinks you're a total apostate. And it turns out it's a little more messy than that. I, I just don't see how our system maintains a third party. I don't think it, it's not built to maintain a third party. We we Everything is structured around two parties. And because we don't have a parliamentary system, we've managed to avoid having these white nationalist parties that Europe has. If you split this sort of white nationalist movement that Trump represents from kind of mainstream conservative politics, you have two very weak parties which cannot possibly compete in a presidential election, in my view. But then you have the scenario where the white nationalist Trumpian wing takes over the party if he gets the nomination and then somehow – what like how does the party right, take that right, back from right, him right. that's the i mean if i was a republican not of his stripe that would like strike deep fear and loathing and and just incredible dismay into my heart john what happens this week before uh, florida and ohio 
that could matter. I and mean, we have well, Louisiana, Kentucky, and Maine this weekend. So, yeah. So there's Kansas, uh, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine. The uh, Democrats have Nebraska on the 5th. Um, and then the Democrats have the Maine on the 6th. So, and then you have Idaho, Michigan, and Mississippi on the 8th. Those are the ones before, um, and Puerto Rico on the 13th. But that's the, that's the ones and twos before the big winner-take-alls on the 15th. Um, everything's proportional until the 15th. So we have basically 12 days of lots of uh, rock'em, sock'em action. Do you uh, think these weekend ones matter, the Kansas, Louisiana, Kentucky? Or it they... depends. Remember when uh, Rick Santorum won little, uh, like the caucus in Minnesota? Because no, it was, I do not remember. Well, that. it was, it was, it was. <laughs> I celebrate that day every well, year. It's on my calendar. My point is, at the time, there were people who, in the in the news business, who who said, "Rick Santorum, oh my God, he's he's going to be the nominee." Like, there, there, in, in this volatile environment, any event is a is a massive, you know, will be stuffed full of important. Uh, moment and also add that that's the normal freak out I guess is my point in 2012 people would freak out of the smallest events in the Santorum Romney fight in this environment you now have Donald Trump who adds like you know multiplies all that by a hundred because both of his own ability to um, generate news and because of the intense interest in him so I think all of these little things will be stuffed full of meaning I think the thing that means the most is is Florida and Ohio because those are big. If you if Trump can be stopped there, that matters. Those are states people know. They're states you need in the general. They will suggest that the that there is a real legitimacy. I mean, the long shot will no longer be a long shot if they can take him down in in Florida and Ohio. That's really what to keep the eye on. All right, let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. How great would it be if the post office was open at twenty four hours a day, seven days a week? No more limited hours. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule. And now you can if you use Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can print postage whenever you need it, right from your desk. No more going to the post office only to get stuck in line for half an hour waiting to send one package. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier picks it up. Get the exact postage the instant you need it. You will not overpay anymore. No more shoving five stamps on a package that needs one. You'll even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Right now, sign up for stamps.com. Use our promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Hillary Clinton having all but locked up her nomination. That's me saying that. You guys can argue with me about that. But having all but locked up her nomination is preparing for a general election campaign against, I think she presumes, Donald Trump. And I thought we would talk about what that campaign might be like. It is probably not going to be like any presidential campaign we've ever seen before. These are two candidates who have deep flaws and who are both widely disliked. There's one theory that she should attack his character, his sexism, his racism, and then sort of on a parallel track also attack his fitness for office. It seems like the Republicans are going to make that easy for her to do that, given that they're attacking his fitness for office already. Still, Trump is an erratic figure. He is a bully. He's not like anyone she has ever campaigned against. It is not clear 
at all what this campaign might look like. So Emily, just with the proviso, which we said in the last segment, that, that Soothsane um, will make a fool of us, what do you think her strategy is likely to be if she has to run against Trump? Well, she has tons of ammunition to go after him with, and the Republicans are paving the way. So she'll make sure that voters are extremely familiar with Trump University and Trump's company's bankruptcies. And something like 20 or 25 percent of the voters actually knew about all these damning, I think, aspects of his record. And, you know, by the time of the general election, you would expect that to be much higher and that seems like a good way to go. And the one I, I line you know, from Marco... I, I, can I, can no? I step in on that? I actually Please. don't think that... I, I, I'm sure there are specific things that you can hit Trump on. Obviously, I don't think Trump is not the businessman he claims to be. But he's enough of a success in the world that I don't know that it's a, that that's a winning strategy to try to say, look, he's not a good businessman. His... You're just saying, oh, it's going to seem to be fraud? The way he treats people, the Trump University, the eminent domain, taking up properties, eh, it's the idea no. of like he's screwing over exactly the people no. who think that, no, you don't no, think, I don't think why? so. I don't Because I think the people are voting for him because they perceive him to be successful in this enterprise of business. He knows how to run. He knows how to make the tough decisions. Uh, sure, he makes mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes because if you take great risks, you make mistakes. But that doesn't, it doesn't seem to me that's a successful line of attack. He's a, he is uh, evidently, I mean, this evidently a successful businessman everyone knows that, that if you're a successful person in business you're going to have made compromises and uh, and had be- deals go bad and and to have fired people and that's actually i think a source of strength for him huh i like the con artist line i feel like that's the best contribution marco rubio has made like this person is hoodwinking you you think that he's you know authentic and going to fight for you but actually that's, you know, he's just like in this for himself and he has hired illegal workers, yada, yada. But that doesn't sound. What do you think, John? I think if you're Hillary Clinton, um, Hillary Clinton has lots of negatives and things she has to solve on her own. The Indeed. sooner if she gets in a tit for tat with Trump, that's his best territory. We saw when she called him a sexist and he started going through slowly and patiently, Bill Clinton's record in life, that made things very uncomfortable for the Clinton campaign, both on the specific terms, but also because it raises and brings up again all of the, all of the muck of the, of the Clinton history. One way she can fight on turf that he doesn't fight on is the turf she's already been working in the last couple of weeks, which is she uses his message about America and his negativ- negativity and plays off of that and, and is optimistic and hopeful and um, tries to give people a vision of the future that they can feel good about. And I think that's obviously uh, part of what Bernie Sanders has tapped into. Um, it's territory that is actually makes people people feel better. People don't, I mean, it, we, there are studies, of course, that show people vote um, based on their anger more often than based on their hopes. But just given the shape of the race and where it is now, that's the open running room, it seems to me, for her. And if you want to get ugly and get into the specifics of of Trump's career and all of that, there can be a time to do that. But you could imagine her doing lots of repair work on her own stature, which would also uh, create a contrast with him on this kind of sense of optimism and, and the future of America being full of promise, and that that would just kind of also change the tone of the election, which I think there's probably an appetite for people out there who right. want to see something that's not so corrosive. The, I the, hope so. The other part of it, I think that, that the slow 
steady Hillary, showing her temperament, showing her steadiness, showing her competence, showing her, you know, her her hard work for America while he behaves erratically, uh, says terrible things that in the long run, that's that will win. It doesn't it's not working in the in the Republican primary because there are too many. It's a divided field because the, the Republican primary electorate is angrier than the electorate as a whole. But in the long haul of the general election campaign, I do think that the temperament issue, rather than the, the actual substance of Trump, because Trump has an, as policy substance, Trump doesn't have any policy substance. And even and on these business attacks, I don't think they're going to work. But the temperament, I do think, in the long run, people are going to say, like, who do I actually want to be making decisions in, in the White House? I really want somebody who seems like a like a like more like a Hillary Clinton than like a Donald Trump. One thing that's been surprising to me is that nobody um, other than Robert, uh, well, no, actually, uh, other than General Hayden, the former head of the CIA and the NSA, has sketched out the reality of what a Trump presidency would look like. And uh, General Hayden said that, you know, this this idea that you're going to attack terrorist families and waterboard, that the military would refuse a commander in chief who gave those orders, that that's just, that would be the reaction. And in doing so created a, took us into the future and and suggested what some of the practical realities of the things that he's promoting would look like in in a real presidency. And I've been surprised none of his critics have focused on some of that, what it would actually look like in office. Okay. Let's now hear from our next sponsor, which is Harry's.com. You know the old adage that good things come in sets of threes? March, it's the third month of the year. It's also the third year business anniversary of our friends over at Harry's. And if you're new to Harry's, we have got a special deal for you to get $5 off your first order. As those of you who listen to the GFS know, I am a Harry's devotee. I love my orange Harry's razor. I love my Harry's shave cream, which is in a lovely shade of forest green. The cream itself is white. The container is green. That orange and green is a is a signal to me that I'm about to get rid of my beard detritus every week. I love that. And Harry's is a great deal. So why would you pay $32 for an eight-pack of blades when you can get them for half that price at harrys.com? For just $15, you can get a Harry's starter set, which includes a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. Harry's gives you factory direct prices. They cut out the middleman and ship their products right to your door. And right now, Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code GABFEST. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code GABFEST at checkout. The biggest abortion case the Supreme Court has heard since Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1993 came to an eight-person court this week. The case involves a law passed in Texas imposing massive new requirements on clinics offering abortions. Notably, the, the biggest ones, I think, Emily, are that they, doctors who are performing abortions must have admitting privileges at local hospitals, which is very hard for doctors to get because local hospitals don't want to grant those admitting privileges, and also that they must meet sort of much stricter requirements uh, the kind of requirements that are usually put on big hospitals themselves about right. not some, actually put on big hospitals, put on surgical centers, like places that do outpatient surgery. Surgical centers, excuse me. So the question facing the Supreme Court is: Do these new restrictions impose an undue burden on those seeking abortions and those providing abortions? According to uh, abortion rights advocates, 
the this uh, law will cause all but 10 of the 40 clinics in Texas to close. There could be, uh, n- I think it's none west of San Antonio. Is that right? So it, yep. a vast area, an area that's bigger than California, essentially, that would be without any ab- abortion services. So why is this case important, not just for the women of Texas, who whose reproductive rights are at issue, but but for the country as a whole? Well, lots of other states have some version of parts of these restrictions. Um, Depending on how you count, there are around 20 states that have some aspect of this, or maybe it's more like a dozen that really are in the territory of Texas in terms of shutting down clinics, um, of having that effect. You know, even if it's just 12, that's a lot. And for years, there's been a kind of competition between states like Mississippi and um, South Dakota to be the state without any abortion clinic at all. There's a fight going on in Louisiana where there could be only a few clinics left if this law is upheld. It's a little trickier, I should say. There's like an asterisk now on this case, which has to do with Justice Scalia's death. When the court agreed to take the case and there were nine justices, if there was a clear majority of five to uphold Texas's restrictions, that would have clearly applied to all these other state restrictions and you would have seen clinics shutting down all over the place. Now that's off the table, and the best that abortion opponents can hope for is a four-to-four split where Texas's law would be upheld, but there wouldn't be any um, significance or precedential value from that ruling for the other states. And so then we'd have a fight about the other states on another day when we're back to having an odd number of justices whenever that day might be. And then, of course, the other possibility is that Justice Kennedy could side with um, the liberal justices who are very forceful at oral argument this week. And then Texas law would be struck down. And if there's a clear majority, then that would apply to these other states. And Kennedy kind of tantalized everyone at argument by asking one question about whether um, these restrictions could be an undue burden on women and that everyone will be clinging to that one sentence he uttered um, on the pro-choice side until we find out what the ruling is. Somebody said that Ruth Bader Ginsburg asked some amazing question at oral argument. Were they just being uh, fans of hers or was there some? (laughs) She asked a question early on. So the three women on the court were just like, very righteous and forceful. And essentially what they were doing was point just making it really clear that these restrictions have no medical purpose. And so then you're in this land of like, well, what's really going on here? This isn't really about women's health and safety. It's really just about preventing abortion, which would seem to be unconstitutional. And so I think my favorite one was Justice Kagan, who said, Hmm, now, there are lots of other more med- dangerous medical procedures that Texas doesn't regulate to this degree, isn't there? And then the lawyer for Texas said, well, yes. And then Justice Kagan said, so why would they treat abortion differently? That, I think, got some you know reaction in the courtroom because, of course, we all know why. But the, the, <laughs> the answer is somehow like not what they're supposed to say. And the undue burden standard, Emily, is that in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in the plurality decision, I guess, that Kennedy wrote, right? There's this... He co-wrote it, probably, yeah. This phrase, us. undue burden, that the, right. that the new abortion restrictions cannot impose undue burden on women who are seeking abortion. Do, I don't understand how any reading of this law could could conclude that it doesn't impose an undue burden. But yes. what, what does anyone know what that phrase means? 
Well, that phrase is fun. I mean, it's malleable, right? So it meant more, I think, when Justice O'Connor was on the court because it really came from her. But we haven't seen it mean what it would have to mean here in order to allow these laws to stand. And so there were a couple of there are a couple of directions the court could go in. With the Fifth Circuit, the um, appellate court that upheld the Texas law, what they said was essentially like, it's not our business to ask why the legislature thought this law was medically necessary. They said it was. If there's any rational basis, we're not looking under the hood of the car. That's their problem. That would seem to be at odds with the whole undue burden analysis. And that seemed to be... I have trouble imagining the Supreme Court is going to go in the Fifth Circuit's direction on this because it's just like so at odds with so many other areas of law. They started to drill down on, well, do we really know that these clinics are closing because of this law? And do we really know that it's harder for women to get an abortion if these clinics close? What about the fact that wait times have not gone up in a clinic in like Dallas or Houston somewhere? And I have to say, like, smoke, I could barely read this part of the transcript because smoke was coming out of my ears. Eleven clinics closed the day after one of these Texas provisions went into effect. And then after it was stayed, they reopened. And the notion that, like, because the wait times haven't gone up at certain places, because, like, what, maybe there's evidence in Texas that women are self-inducing abortions more than they were before. And certainly they are having to drive much greater distances, and there's all kinds of anecdotal testimony from women who couldn't get an appointment, who decided to have a baby, who, like, asked the nurse on the phone, you know, is there anything in my medicine cabinet or my, you know, kitchen that I could use to cause an abortion? I mean, like, how... (laughs) Do we really need like the full on study to know that, yes, if a law closes clinics and the clinics close, there was a cause and effect there and that it's going to matter for whether women can access abortion? Emily, I think one of the claims of the anti-abortion pro-life people in this is, well, it doesn't matter. There are no clinics in West Texas because there there are clinics in New Mexico that people can use. And there was a similar case. Wasn't there an argument that in Mississippi, that people from Mississippi could go to Louisiana or Alabama? Yeah. That there was an argument like that. I find that this is a this is a really crazy set of uh, arguments <laughs> to me. The idea that abortion, your abortion right in the state of Texas, is conditioned on what the state of New Mexico decides to do about it. I mean, because why can't the state of New Mexico now do you know do things to close all the clinics in eastern New Mexico and? Does that mean that then Texas has to reopen clinics in West Tech? There have to be government-sponsored abortion clinics in in El Paso. Um, <laughs> is does the Supreme Court is they are they considering the sort of federalist implications of saying your abortion rights are protected, but only in another state? I think it will be hard for them to ignore that. And this was like a genius moment for Justice Ginsburg at argument this week, where she said, "Well, you're saying it's so important to protect these women of Texas with all of this." regulation and you know these like very expensive surgical facilities that you think are necessary so why is it okay to go over to new mexico send your you know ladies over there where they have no such safety restrictions in place like isn't that and that i think again is this way of just trying to expose what's really going on here these restrictions work beautifully as a method of closing abortion clinics. And they're also, at first blush, very attractive rhetorically because you people who've promoted them can say that they're all about women's health and safety and protecting women. 
that's a great slogan for abortion opponents to try to grab from the pro-choice movement and from Planned Parenthood, right? To say like, no, we're the ones who stand with women. It's just that when you start drilling down on it, the, the argument starts to really like fall apart, I think. All right. Now let's hear from our other sponsor this week, which is audible.com. Life is busy. And often you don't have time to sit down to read a book. I know this is this is certainly the case for me. When you're heading to work, when you're walking around town, you're working out of the gym, you should let Audible entertain you. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. You can listen anywhere by using your smartphone, computer, or tablet. So what are some titles you might want to listen to? The Big Short by Michael Lewis. That is a great book. It's, of course, a critically acclaimed film. We talked to director Adam McKay on the GabFest a few weeks ago, right before he won his his Oscar for screenwriting for that movie. And the book is a brilliant book. It examines the story behind the U.S. stock crash of 2008, and it's about whether anyone could have foreseen the disaster that was coming. Lewis writes with this really vivid, cinematic, and gripping language. He's a scene setter, and it's wonderful to listen to a book like that. So you should listen to that on Audible. John Dickerson, as he, uh, we were just chatting about what he's listening to on Audible. He is listening to Disturber of the Peace, which is William Manchester's biography of H.L. Mencken, which I'm sure is great because Manchester is a great writer and Mencken is an incredible subject. So you should listen to that too. So you should find The Big Short or Disturber of the Peace or any other book of any genre at audible.com. And as a special offer to GabFest listeners, you can get a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com slash GabFest. That's audible.com slash GabFest. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. When you, Emily Bazelon, are contemplating your own mortality, sitting on a porch in New Haven. Actually, I wouldn't sit on the porch. Too cold sitting inside by the fire in New Haven, contemplating your mortality. What are you going to be chattering to the little Bazelons about? We've been talking a lot in my house about the Ku Klux Klan, not only because of Donald Trump's um, non-immediate disavowal of it. My oldest son, coincidentally, months ago, chose as the topic for his history term paper the history of the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, which he's learned a lot about. And I have learned a lot about. I really couldn't have told you anything about it. So it was kind of amazing to have the Klan so much back in the news this week. And I'm sure that lots of our listeners have already gone to see this. But there's, uh, I thought, just a riveting four minutes of television on CNN with Van Jones and Jeffrey Lord, liberal and conservative commentary, duking it out over Trump's um, dog whistle, I would say, to white supremacists and refusing to immediately and passionately disavow the Klan and a kind of discussion of Klan history. So I have to say from the basis of Eli's paper that what is really striking about the rise of the Klan is that they were um, a vigilante force. And there were some Southern sheriffs and town officials who tried to stop them. And the Klan you know, threatened to murder them too. There was a way in which it was so extreme that the local government 
um, the southern government that was had some legitimacy couldn't stop it. And then the federal government basically just refused to. And Andrew Johnson, who was then president, really spoke out almost in favor of the Klan and against black people taking power in the South in these like really repulsive racist terms and just failed to step in and prevent the rise of this really frightening entity. Anyway, I hope there are not too many parallels to um, our own time. The, uh, the thing about the interview with Jake Tapper that came across to me in interviews with uh, Republicans this week was it wasn't that that it wasn't just that Donald Trump didn't disavow David Duke or the KKK or white supremacists, but that in his answer, he was for a guy who's built his entire campaign on basically asserting a strong opinion about anything at any moment was at pains in his answer not to offend any of the groups that um, Tapper was referring to. And that to politicians who who know exactly what that's like, because they do it when they're trying to have it both ways on issues about immigration or on about ethanol subsidies or whatever. That's what frightened them the most, was that he was basically trying to leave his options open here when the question was bigotry. And for them, they thought, yowza. That's a great point. John, what is your chatter? My chatter is something uh, totally frivolous from that 1976 Republican presidential race that we keep returning to. Um, It's about a prank that was pulled with the the help and amusement of Gerald Ford, who was running that year in 1976. This was against, I think this was still in the primary season. But anyway, Tom DeFrank was a reporter for the, a great reporter for the for Newsweek magazine, who um, wrote a, a book about Ford, and it was called Write It When I'm Gone, interviews with him that, that were published after Ford died. Anyway, he was in the press corps, and he went to Texas A&M, which was an all-male school. And another member of the press corps, Jim Naughton, who was a wonderful and mirth-filled reporter for the New York Times, when they were driving through Peoria, Illinois, saw a, a farm with some sheep on it. And Naughton had made jokes about DeFrank and the fact that he'd gone to Texas A&M, and that, you know, late at night, in an all-male school, they, you know, ha- had kept the company of sheep to keep them from being lonely. So Naughton um, decided upon seeing the sheep at the farm in Peoria that he would pull a prank and get a farmer to rent him a, a sheep and put it in DeFrank's room. You can't just do that when you're in the presidential uh, press corps. So you have to get the the um, support of the Secret Service. So uh, Ron Nesson, who was the press secretary for the president, went to the president and said, Naughton wants to pull this off, but he needs the Secret Service to do it. And Ford said, oh, yeah, no, sure, he's got to do that. So the Secret Service uh, allowed them to get a sheep. The farmer brought the sheep for the rental cost price of $25 to the um, hotel in Peoria in the lobby. And Ron Nesson woke up DeFrank in the middle of the night and said, hey, I've got this great scoop. Come down to the bar and I'll tell it to you. And DeFrank was all angry and was like, why can't you just tell it to me on the phone? So Nesson said, well, you got to come down. So he comes down. While he's down, Naughton and a bunch of other members of the press corps and two random civilians who just saw them all hanging around in the parking lot and thought this was really funny, went and took the sheep up into DeFrank's room put the sheep in the room, and then they all, about a dozen of them, hid in, like, the bathtub and in the closet and all of that. Meanwhile, the sheep, of course, unaccustomed as sheep are to spending time in the hotel rooms of Peoria, mostly they like the B&Bs, the, uh, the sheep was clomping around the room, uh, expressing either its delight or its fright through periodic expressions of its uh, bowels, was having quite a time of it. Then DeFrank shows up... Uh, the sheep goes even more crazy. The reporters run out of the room in hysterics, Naughton leaving and saying that um, they wanted to make sure that DeFrank had a little quiet time with the sheep. The next day, uh, Reagan saw DeFrank and uh, said, Morning, Tom. How's your friend? 
and it was probably one of the only times that DeFranc had um, had nothing that he could respond to the president. That is that is a 1970s prank. Prank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got like a 1970s all boys. Yeah. Uh, club prank. Yeah. Um, my chatter today is I'm just simply going to read a column that Alexandra Petrie, who is a Washington Post columnist, wrote about Chris Christie's eyes. So Donald <laughs> Trump gave this press conference on Tuesday night after he'd won. Chris Christie introduced him and Chris Christie stood behind him and appeared his, his eyes just expressed a kind of horror that mesmerized people, certain segments of the Trump disliking media. So she introduces by saying she thought Trump was talking, but it was impossible to hear him over Chris Christie's eyes. Chris Christie spent the entire speech screaming wordlessly. I've never seen someone scream so loudly without using his mouth before. It would have been remarkable if it had not been so terrifying. Sometimes at night, do you hear them, Clarice, the screaming of the Christie's? His were the eyes of a man who has gazed into the abyss, and the abyss gazed back, and then he endorsed the abyss. And decided to endorse the abyss. Endorse the abyss, yes. It was not a thousand-yard stare. That would understate the vast and impenetrable distance it encompassed. He looked as if he had seen a ghost, and the ghost had made him watch Mufasa die again. He had the eyes of a man who has looked into the heart of light, the silence, a man who has seen the moment of his greatness flicker, and seen the eternal footman hold his coat and snicker, and in short, he looked afraid. He had the face of a man who has used his third wish and realized too late that may my family never starve could be twisted to mean that the genie should murder his entire family. He had the face of a man who has just realized his own mortality. Look into those eyes and try to deny that Chris Christie has seen something. Someone just told Chris Christie there is no God, or Chris Christie has just discovered that God does exist, but she is an enormous snake who hates or is indifferent to mankind, or Chris Christie has just discovered that there is no God, but that hell is real. And it goes on and on in this vein. I thought it was so incredibly funny. So I implore you to read Alexandra Petrie's very, very funny. It's good. You got a love song of jail from Proof Rock. There's you so got many, Game of Thrones. Some Harry Potter in here. Yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway. All right. That does it for the show this week. Our intern is El Bisgard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers, chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network, which is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, and our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. In my notes, I have Emily and John Dickerson, but there's no Bazelon. I have John's last name written, and I have my own last name written. <laughs> I could just join John's family. Right. John. <laughs> I've been adopted as his new sister daughter. I don't know. For Emily, who is Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Bye bye. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, the host of the newest podcast on Panoply Imaginary Worlds. Every other week, I explore different sci fi fantasy genres, how they're created, and why we suspend our disbelief. You could start at the beginning with what makes a good origin story, whether you're applying for a job or starting out as a new superhero. You could also check out my five-part series on Star Wars, where I looked at how the evil empire became a metaphor in sports and politics, and whether Princess Leia's gold bikini is a feminist icon. Imaginary Worlds gives you the backstory behind pop culture stories and how they've changed the way we understand the real world. You can subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or... 
wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. <laughs> 